0: Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. talk. Good morning, this is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast Money Talk for Thursday the 24th of August. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, President Xi Jinping called on the BRICS block of emerging markets to fast-track a plan to expand its membership. Speaking at the BRICS summit in Johannesburg yesterday, President Xi said, I'm glad to see growing enthusiasm from developing countries about participating in BRICS. The block should accelerate the BRICS expansion process to bring more countries into the BRICS family and pool wisdom to make global governance more fair and reasonable. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi said India fully supports the expansion of BRICS membership and we welcome moving forward based on consensus. President Xi added that an expanded BRICS would make global governments more equitable. Japan's business activity expanded at a faster pace in August, powered by a solid service sector expansion. The Japan composite PMI rose to 52.6 from a final 52.2 in the prior month, a flash reading showed. This was the eighth straight month of expansion in Japan's private sector activity and the steepest pace in three months. But private sector growth in the U.S. came close to stalling this month. The S&P Global U.S. Composite PMI declined to 50.4 in August, falling short of market expectations of 52. The latest reading indicated the weakest upturn in private sector activity since February, as a deepening contraction in the manufacturing sector was accompanied by slower growth in service sector outputs. On today's program, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and with a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SAPRO Group. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, (laughs) peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. US stocks rallied Wednesday as investors awaited results from chip designer NVIDIA to see how it performs against high Wall Street expectations. Equities were boosted by a slide in bond yields, The S&P 500 gained 1.1% to end the day at 4,436, its best daily performance since June the 30th. The Dow closed 184 points higher, or half a percent, at 34,473. Dow member Nike fell for a tenth straight day, its longest slide on record, losing 2.7%. Big tech stocks led the gains. The Nasdaq Composites rose for the third straight day, climbing 1.6% to 13,721. And here they come after the closing bell. NVIDIA reported an 88% jump in revenue to $13.5 billion, topping estimates driven by surging demand for AI chips. Nvidia's performance was boosted by its data center business, which includes the A100 and H100 AI chips that are needed to build and run AI applications like ChatGBT. NVIDIA reported 10.32 billion US dollars in data data center revenue, which was up 171% on an annual basis. And NVIDIA said it expected third quarter revenue of about 16 billion, which is higher than the 12.6 billion forecast by Refinitiv. Nvidia said its board of directors had authorized 25 billion US dollars in share buybacks, and shares of Nvidia surged 7% to a new record high in after hours trading. Long-dated U.S. Treasury yields continued to ease Wednesday. The 10-year yield dropped 14 basis points to 4.19%. A lot of the move occurred after the release of flash U.S. PMI data, which was weaker than expected. Yields on the benchmark 10-year note have retreated since hitting their highest level since 2007 on Monday. Hong Kong stocks hovered around the flat line for most of the day before closing 55 points or a third of a percent higher at 17,846. The benchmark index hit a nine-month low on Monday. The tech index was up 0.2%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite tumbled 1.3% to 3,078, erasing all the gains and more from the previous session, as economic uncertainties in China and a weaker-than-expected response from authorities to support growth weighed on sentiment does look like the Hang seng's going to rally a little bit more this morning. Futures markets projecting an open of about 90 points or half a percent higher. And you can get the more details on the latest market movements, which you'll find in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com.
1: Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's
0: Money Talk. Peter Lewis. Lu- Welcome, our regular Thursday morning guest, Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Welcome back to Hong Kong, Andrew. Thanks. nice to be back, Peter. Thank you. Thank you for having me, of course. Of course, you're very welcome. Always great to hear you. Let's let's start talking about BRICS. Um, President Xi Jinping is calling on the BRICS bloc to basically fast track a plan to expand its membership and he wants BRICS to become a full-scale rival to the G7. He said yesterday in Johannesburg, I'm glad to see growing enthusiasm for developing countries about participating in BRICS. The bloc should accelerate the BRICS expansion process to bring more countries into the BRICS family and pool wisdom to make global governance more fair and reasonable. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi supports that. He said the expansion of BRICS was welcome, providing it was based on consensus, and President Xi said BRICS and expanded BRICS would make global governance more equitable. Um, Andrew, what do you think about this? A lot of focus this time, isn't there, on this BRICS summit, far more than I think we've ever seen um, in the past. Is that reflecting more maybe the importance of of this block of countries? Uh, I have a threefold reaction, all of which is
2: incredibly sceptical, because uh, getting a group of countries to work effectively together, uh, there has to be an enormous amount of coincidence of their needs, expectations and, and wishes as opposed to simply the desire uh, to stand up against uh, G20. it uh, was my first reaction would be, and this is uh, nothing to do with uh, China just taking the leadership, because China was, uh, incidentally, was an accidental pack. It was uh, an economist that created BRICS, uh, the name, and uh, China found itself into a club that <laughs> they never really did create, if you, mm. if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah, it's been so converted if, if G20, from a word, hasn't G20,
0: it? It's been sorry. converted from a word into a, a sort of a, into a club, a, into yeah. a club, yeah. 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 Exactly. yeah, yeah. If if G20
2: is a bad idea in the sense of bringing the wealthy ones together, which they look after themselves, then I'm not quite sure if it is a good idea to create another club with some really big economies in it, like Russia, like Brazil, like China, that presumably they will also be looking after their, their interest. And of course, unlike the G20, they are going to have quite a ragtag. I'm sorry, I don't want to use a, a disrespectful word of relatively poor countries uh, whose, uh, let's say, desires and wishes may not quite coincide. Mm. The second point uh, that uh, I, I, I raise is, is some of the participants have a very significant uh, political conflict stroke interest. And of course, the two biggest ones there is China and India. Which well, until very recently, I wouldn't say they went into war, but they have uh, very sharp altercations over border issues. Well, uh, you know, thank God Belgium is not threatening Holland <laughs> with an incursion, okay, in other words, you're having a group of countries that uh, the only the only interest they have is is the money on the table
0: mm. And the third
2: parties the third parties are not quite sure what they' are going to do I'm still trying to read. Uh, the agenda. In other words, okay, we're all joined together. Very good. What happens after that? Mm. You see what I mean? Uh, so, this, this is my, 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 my reaction is, is very good, not a bad idea. You go ahead, and then under my teeth, I mumble. I remember also of APEX, of CEPEX, of UPEX, of TRIPEX, you know, all these multi million variations of Asian countries getting together, which effectively we more or less stop listening or rather stop hearing of them. You know, for this to work, it has to have money on the table. It's as simple as that. It has to have money on the table. And uh, presumably, uh, if they will stop using the U.S. dollar, okay, then uh, the alternative presumably is going to be the the RMB. I can tell you, India and Brazil, there is no way they are going to have that. Mm. for purely political reasons.
0: So this idea of having a, a sort of a BRICS uh, currency, even just among the existing five members, is, is just a non-starter, isn't it?
2: Yeah, um, I'm, I'm afraid it is. You know, I'm not, I'm not let's, let me put it very carefully, I'm not a huge lover of the dollar, in the sense that I'll say, oh, good, United States, good old dollar. Okay, There are specific reasons why the dollar is being used by people that absolutely detest the United States, like Iran and like Venezuela. Mm. I mean, it it it, it makes uh, it, crudely it makes a huge amount of sense. So I don't like you, but I like your money. Mm. Uh, so creating creating a currency has always been a complete non-starter, but a complete non-starter because it requires some very 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 special characteristics for this uh, to take on. And crudely, you know, if you turned to a group of civil servants anywhere in the world and tell them, sorry, from now on, we're going to pay your salaries in U.S. dollars. I'm Sure, they would not like it, but try telling them we're going to pay you in Brazilian real or in Indian rupee or whatever, rather, in Chinese Mm -hmm. yuan and and see their reaction. And again, I'm being simply pragmatic as opposed to being, uh, let's say, negative to these uh, three very big economies.
0: And I presume, if you have a BRICS currency, you've got to have a BRICS central bank, which is also another non-starter, oh, isn't it?
2: Please don't 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 start me on that, because that's, uh, that's uh, the Argentinians specialize in in exotic combinations. Uh, I even heard the expression of a kind of a Kamazutra bank on financial economics. In other words, all kinds of, of impossible positions for
0: you to enjoy. Okay. Mm. Well, I mean, I'm amazed at how many countries want to join something like 24 different countries from as far and wide as Iran, Argentina, Saudi Arabia. I mean, it's hard to see how these widely divergent economies can, can work together. But would there be benefits from a, a country, say, like Argentina, which is in effect bankrupt, isn't it? Would there be benefits absolutely, for absolutely. it? I
2: don't know who will have Argentina, you know.
0: Would there be benefits about, for them about, of joining? Uh, I Really,
2: I have no idea. I think uh, it is expectations overcoming uh, reality, and people don't uh, stand down and says, hang on a minute, what am I... I you want know, to join it? The only question you need to ask is, what's in it for me? Mm. And as you say, looking at Iran and looking at Brazil, okay, and looking for that matter, Saudi Arabia, that has got only one thing there, oil, okay is to say what is it going to be for me in here mm. and uh, that 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 uh, that that's very strange and very awkward uh, uh, to look at yeah
0: i mean china's clear ambition is it by it thinks that by doing this it will make the brics countries more powerful make them able to challenge uh, the g7 is, is that correct though is big necessarily more uh, more powerful will these countries have more clout as a result of clubbing together
2: again i'll go back to my to my filter what's in it for me and this what's in it for me is so hugely diverse amongst them that i just can't see how they will somehow okay act in unison mm-hmm. right because they produce completely different things they're in completely different stages of their development some of them are quite wealthy uh, like saudi okay and some of them are quite poor you know, I don't want on again to to sound disparaging. You know, it is it is the reality. This world works on "show me the money." That fantastic film, mm. okay? Show me the money. Show me the money, <laughs> and then I'll tell you precisely what is going to happen, okay?
0: And I presume that that China and India, the two biggest countries there, don't have the same motivations for doing this, do they? I mean, China is looking for allies that's basically not Europe, not the US that it can sort of club together with and try and fight the West, whereas India sees it more as an economic arrangement. I don't think India particularly wants to see this as an organisation that's going to challenge the West or the G7, does it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Modi plays plays both games. In other words, he's trying to be good with God and good with the devil uh, because reluctantly, reluctantly, he's sort of participating in what the Chinese call the great ensettlement. In other words, you, you, know, you have South Korea, Australia and Japan on the right-hand side of the map, and then uh, you have India on the soft underbelly kind of, uh, of, of China. And this, this uh, will not go away. But it cannot go away, because if a country develops, okay, and it doesn't have an army, then uh, it's worth nothing in terms of international politics. Mm. Okay, well, uh, India has got actually the third biggest defense interest in the world. <laughs> you know, that's, this is an amazing thing to say. And of course, <laughs> it is. it has a big army, and it is armed quite well. So does China. And uh, two countries that are growing, and they are also armed, okay, uh, they are going to have problems getting along together. Japan managed to get along very well for nearly 70 years at the end of the Second World War by simply saying, we let the United States look after us, and we will simply concentrate on making Walkman. And they made them very nicely and very expensive and very profitable. Now Japan is arming, and it is arming for a, for a number of reasons, one of which is, of course, it's, it's wishing to take its own position in the world, because if one asks the question, in which way did Japan contribute in any major political event in the world since 1970, and the answer is none, Mm -hmm. okay, why, because it was never around, was it an important economic power, incredibly so, okay, but it never had the muscle that uh, partially the European Union and most definitely the United States had, Okay, to say not only we have the money, but we also have the guns. That's another, that's another crude reality in this world. If you are not armed, people don't listen to you. Mm. However immoral or unfair this might sound.
0: So then if if this is only going to work, as you say, if, sh- if you show me the money, presumably the, the thing then that becomes important for some of these countries is issues like debt reduction and, um, you know, and how they can wean themselves off of uh, massive yeah. amounts of debt. And, you know, maybe there's roles there for the United States and the World Bank and the and the IMF. So it's not so they're still going to have to rely on sort of institutions that were originally set up by the West, which China doesn't particularly like.
2: Yeah, And here we end, uh, we end up with yet another problem, and that is the international bank. I forget exactly the name that uh, uh, China has helped to set up, and it is the major shareholder, and it is supposed to be the counterpart of IMF and the World Bank. And of course, if China is a major shareholder, uh, of course it should be. It's the biggest, it's the biggest uh, economy. It will need a lot of convincing to everybody else that joins that uh, it will not swing the institution in its own direction. And of course it would. Mm. You know, I would never accuse the Americans of trying to muscle the IMF and the World Bank because they're, they're, they're the ones that pick up the biggest dump. Mm. You bet they would. Mm. It would be stupid if they didn't. Mm. However immoral this may sound.
0: (laughs) Okay. And I presume also the other issue that they've got to work out is you can't just suddenly have people turn up and and join the club. There's got to be some sort of process, hasn't there, and um, sort of minimum standards that you have to meet. It becomes a bit of a bureaucracy, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, they they should have taken a leaf out of the book of the European Union that opened its doors to... Let's say some doubtful candidates, both in terms of their political maturity and their economic status. So all the worst now, if, as you say, please join us. Actually, I didn't have the time to do a filter and to find out how many of the potential candidates are recipients of the largesse of China in the Silk and Belt Road. Mm. In other words, not to see that the BRICS is going to become a kind of BRICS and Silk and Belt Road Association.
0: Mm, which is what China wants, of course. I, I is,
2: but again, it's, you know, it sounds as if I'm a conspiracy theorist, that uh, the Chinese are planning to to, to rule the world. Uh, okay, And uh, my reaction is, is, of course they would. It would be mm. completely stupid not to try to do mm. it. The Americans have been doing it. So the Chinese wish to do it. Mm. Uh, so it is, uh, well, of course, the Chinese will tell you that's not what we we'll want to do. Well, okay. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm but, say, but, I, couldn't, I couldn't and I wouldn't enter into a discussion on that.
0: Yeah, but, I, you know, we have to call a, pay, a spade a spade here. I mean, China does want to be the dominant partner in uh, or the dominant uh, force in BRICS, doesn't it? That's why it's doing it.
2: and why shouldn't they? It's the third biggest economy. Mm. Uh, I, I, I say I'm afraid. Unfortunately, they will need to, to to hurry up incredibly quickly and catch up with the defense capabilities of the United States, but they are aware of this kind of game that the Americans played incredibly successful with the Soviet Union and ruined it. Okay. And the, one, the one which is looking askance now, and I'm observing this very carefully, is of course India. Okay? Because India and China are really the two biggest countries in the world, with potentially, in terms of CN numbers, the biggest armies. But unfortunately, it's not the numbers that count. It's the quality of the numbers that count. And if you want an example, look at Singapore and
0: look at, uh, at Israel. All right, And that involves money, lots of it. <laughs> hmm. So, what about the G20 then? Is that more relevant these days? I mean, the G20 leaders' summit is going to take place in New Delhi next month. Obviously, India and China are part of the G20, whereas they're not part of the G7. Is the G20 becoming the more sort of, um, if, if you like, relevant organisation or group of, uh, of group of, of countries that, that can maybe make changes to to the world? <laughs>
2: Yeah, unfortunately, uh, Peter, yes, it's because it has the wealthiest countries in it. It's mm. as simple as that. Mm. It's as brutal as that, you know.
0: So, I mean, President Biden has confirmed he's going to go to the G20 Leaders Summit uh, next month in uh, in Delhi. So, presumably, this is his opportunity to meet with uh, President Xi Jinping as well and see if they I can iron so. out some yes. of their, their differences. Yeah,
2: I hope so. I mean, that's, uh, <laughs> that's a very good idea. And again, uh, w- one tends to be a Little bit skeptical about that, and of course, in the shadows, okay. And uh, I hate to bring this up, lurks the possibility that Trump might become the next president in the United
0: States. What happens? Oh, my god, what happens to all these organizations then?
2: <laughs> well, G20 is going to receive quite a blow. Uh, BRICS will become uh, simply a straw man, potentially, for Trump to say, I don't believe in any of this. Mm. What matters? It's me my money and my guns in other words unfortunately he has a, an incredibly crude and realistic approach to things except that the way this can or should have been applied would have been very much cuck and also because i'm absolutely terrified what will happen with the with the forthcoming uh, uh, cop28 and that's the united nations conference on uh, on uh, on on climate and as as we know physically we know okay, we are all going on a steep road, downward steep road to hell. I mean, see what happened this summer.
0: There's no chance of countries meeting their, their climate goal commitments, are there? Their, their none, zero none, reductions. none whatsoever.
2: I'm a, I'm a very close, but having said that, Peter, there has been amazing progress in a hell of a lot of things. I mean, uh, India's coming out of nowhere to be, I think it is possibly the fifth or sixth biggest uh, a producer of energy through green energy. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. Still, India relies 75% on coal, okay? But the effort put into that, and of course now China is effectively a 50% green energy producer and still makes it the second, actually the single biggest uh, emission uh, uh, sort of, um, oh, let's, let's call it, I don't call it pollution, okay, uh, uh, green gas emission. In, in the world. Mm. So there has been genuinely a huge amount of effort, which unfortunately is not anywhere near to what the climatologist tells us we need to hit the 1.5%. And actually, very likely, we are now hitting very comfortably the 2%, and we could hit the 2.5%, in which case, to quote a famous climatologist, we are all going to die.
0: Right. <laughs> well, what about we're still waiting for a plan from China, aren't we? About how they're actually going to meet the commitments that President Xi Jinping made a, a few years ago in terms yeah. of yeah. Um, in, in terms of its go- emissions goals.
2: I, I'm afraid I can speak with a, with a little degree of uh, uh, let's say knowledge here because uh, I, I I have done and I will be doing a lot of work for clients. On, on the climate policies of China. So I'm observing it very, very incredibly closely. And as I said, on one hand, there has been, okay, China now is actually the dominant player in green energy. It's as simple as that. If you want to buy a solar panel or a windmill in all probability, you'll be buying a Chinese made one. Okay? And of course, they use them for themselves. They just don't sell it to other people. It says, don't look what am I doing, look what I'm selling you okay so it it is it is very very, very important but in the last uh, 12 months there has been a, a kind of a reverse in the usage of coal partially because of need partially because of unexpected climatic uh, results and partially for the fact that as demand for coal as demand for electricity increases green energy continues to be very important but you need a constant humming noise that maintains a constant, uh, load irrespective of whether it rains or it shines. And unfortunately, this can only be for the time being provided by coal. Eventually, maybe it may very well be provided with atomic energy. In other words, the, the basic load bearing is taken by something that doesn't rely, does rely on, on nature. In other words, doesn't rely on sunshine and on wind.
0: Mm, Okay, well, this is a topic we're going to have to talk about a a lot more uh, (laughs) on your oncoming program. Let me just ask you about uh, the PMIs. I know you love talking about um, PMIs, Andrew. But in in summary, we've had these flash PMIs from around the world. Japan was pretty good, um, expanded. Eurozone was awful, contracting the most in almost three years. And also the U.S. uh, private sector output uh, looks like it's pretty close to stalling now and dropping into uh, into contraction. Um, yeah. Are we starting to see finally the impact of all these rate rises? Are they now starting to hit and, and starting to hurt? Is that is that what is going on here?
2: Yeah, um, give you, I'm going to give you two answers. One is unbelievably boring and completely commonsensical, and you should never call me on your on your phone call if this is the kind of uh, the kind of value added that I bring. And the second one is truly apocryphal. Okay, the first one is the yes. Higher interest rates, Peter. You say, really, Andrew, I haven't noticed. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, we've been waiting a while, haven't we, to, to this, this uh, well, lag yeah, effect there, that there, everyone talks there about. Is,
2: there is the, the uh, urban tale that uh, in the United States takes about six months for, for the to re, to develop to an ouch reaction. Again, and uh, we are most definitely seeing this. Let's not forget, actually, the Fed started to increase interest rates about a year ago. Okay, so in other words, it kind of works. Okay, it kind of makes some sense now. The second part is, is what I'm afraid I've developed a theory which I'm trying to sell, and I, it has it has met with stunned disbelief, and that is what I call the malaise economies. In other words, economies where a zillion of little things are not going well, and you still end up with a high GDP growth rate, and I'm actually looking right now at China, where I will just read you very quickly. Industrial output, CPI, PPI, industrial profits, investment, cumulative investment, freight, uh, uh, traffic, and electricity, all of them are doing incredibly, are doing very poorly, either negatively or, st- or absolutely flat or going down. And uh, the economy is growing at 4.5% second quarter and 6.3% the first quarter. So what are you complaining about? And this is what I call the malaise economy. Nothing looks as if it is going quite well, and still they get along. That is most definitely also the case with the United States. And Peter, you know what I'm going to blame that? I'm going to blame it on COVID and on long COVID. You know, COVID is, is going through, swathing through economies. You have no idea the number of people are going down with COVID, but we don't know about it because we don't count them anymore.
0: Mm. It's sort of been forgotten about, hasn't it, now? Absolutely, where, yeah. and
2: this is a huge, colossal mistake. It hasn't gone away,
0: mm-hmm. and is
2: very much here, and I refuse to believe that this doesn't have an impact on overall productivity, particularly the long COVID, which is, which is a really nightmare because it depends on the number of people that have already got COVID, re- revived perfectly okay, they're back to their jobs, and they don't feel quite well all the time, and very likely they will not feel quite well, all the time for the rest of their lives.
0: So then putting this all together from what you're saying, I mean, the key yes. to fighting inflation, it's often said uh, the key is to know when to stop. So presumably putting this all together now, the Fed should stop right now um, and, and, you know, and, and stop raising rates.
2: I suspect that they might need to go once more just for the sake of... Uh, of being uh, cautious as opposed to incautious as they were before then, they were accused of coming in with too little, too too, too late. But uh, if it continues like that, in other words, you preside over a murmuring crowd of economic data, all of them whining and saying they are not feeling very well, Mm -hmm. okay, but they are not going to die. Okay, you'll say, oh God, do I have a problem? That's why I have enormous sympathy. For the Chinese authorities, because as I've told you, and actually the list I just told you, it is, I haven't even remotely finished. And the more I add up, okay, the more I find out that things are not doing well. But again, the economy continues to grow. And I don't think for one moment that the Chinese economy is going to go into a recession, meaning they're going to have either several quarters or one year of negative growth. No way.
0: But they're they're not going to meet their targets, presumably. Oh yeah, of, they're not going to meet their five percent uh, target. Yeah, and also they're not Xi, going to meet President Xi Jinping's targets. I think of what was it, doubling income by twenty thirty, and overtaking the US in terms of the size of the economy. Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, that uh, this is uh, this this is well and good. And again, uh, my reaction to all this will be to say, what's in it for us? Okay, so we the economy is now doubled the size and overtook the United States, and and what? Mm-hmm. Am I better off? I mean, is it a more stable economy? Is it a more diversified economy? You know, political political targets are very important because ideology and uh, to some extent morale that can be induced, particularly by a government in China that uh, does have the capacity and the control, okay, to make very clear what it wishes to do and also for people to know that it can do it. It's mm. <laughs> very important. Mm. Okay. But not, of course, in the way that they would like to do it because this is not anymore a centrally planned economy. It's an economy where you're having 50-50, the private sector and the state sector, and now the Chinese themselves, and I caught them, not me, repeatedly said, oops, again, okay, the private sector is very important. We're going to nurture it. We're going to look after it, uh, implying that in the past it wasn't.
0: Okay. Well, Andrew, always good to talk to you. Very interesting discussion there. Look forward to talking to you again next week. That's Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Peter Lewis is money talk. I'm joined now by Ross Feingold, who is Business Development Director at SafePro Group in Taipei over in Taiwan. Good morning, Ross. Good morning. Well, we've been talking about BRICS this morning. Interesting to get your thoughts on it. A lot of focus this year, isn't there, on the BRICS summit, far more than we've seen um, in the past. Why, why are people so interested in, in this BRICS summit this year?
1: Well, one reason is uh, you know, the presence or a lack of presence of Russia. I mean, Russia is, is, a, is a BRICS member. Uh they're heavily sanctioned by the West, and led by the United States and the EU. We know that uh, countries in, in, in the global South and in the Middle East and here in Asia have not been as eager to take sides in, in, in the war or to participate in sanctions. So of course, Putin didn't personally attend. He joined by video. So the whole Russian angle uh, to the BRICS summit has, has caused a lot of you know, focus. Xi Jinping went uh, in person. He hasn't traveled a lot lately, so that all also uh, was another angle. There's this uh, proposal for, for BRICS currencies or any idea that gets away from uh, the dominance of the United States dollar and the BRICS uh, members have been discussing concepts uh, in that nature. And then the possibility for BRICS expansion, which leads into you know, question, inevitable questions about uh, you know, is the U.S. losing its leadership role, uh, whether economically or, or in the security space? And uh, does that mean China is, is replacing the U.S. in some ways? I, I tend to think a, a, a part of that is a bit overblown. I think a lot of these countries would still look to the U.S. as, as their Prime security or, or even Trade partner uh, But uh, it, it is a reality That there, there are other types of blocks Or the blocks that the US In the past preferred Were the leading multilateral Organizations whether that's the The UN or the IMF Or the WHO uh, the, Or the WTO They're not operating In ways that uh, you know people Think like this was the US designed or the US and European designed post world war two system. They're not operating in, in ways that are advantageous to the U.S. And some of these countries are looking for alternatives. So uh, that that's also uh, you know, this expansion concept it might not happen this time. But it's probably inevitable that the BRICs are going to expand. Uh, and uh, again, you know, it's, it, is that Trump's fault? Is that Biden's fault? If you, if you ask the foreign policy experts from the Trump team, they're going to say Biden is, is at fault. And, and it's all within the past couple of years that there's a loss of U.S. leadership. And obviously, uh, people who like Biden's foreign policy are going to say the opposite. They're going to say mm. this is the after effect of Trump's foreign policy.
0: But this is all about money in the end, isn't it? Who, who has the influence is going to be determined about by who has the money and who. Who's prepared to lend them the money, and who's to help them? Who's going to help them with debt reduction, which is a big issue for a lot of these countries that want to join um, BRICS? So, presumably, if the US can, you know, um, get the World Bank and the IMF to to provide more loans, uh, or if China can do it, um, that that's going to really dep- that's going to really determine
1: where the influence lies, doesn't it? Well, the interesting thing about what you just said, uh, I, I would say, is is the role of, of the Middle East countries. So we see uh, despite – and again, I would say the UAE and Saudi Arabia and uh, most of the other Persian Gulf countries and some of the other Arab countries as well, they'll, they'll – Continue to prioritize the United States as as their security and political partner, uh, but despite U.S. displeasure, they are expanding their trade relationship and in some cases a political relationship with China as well. They're allowing China to take a greater role in the, you know, China's mediation between Saudi Arabia and Iran is is a great example of that. Uh, but but a lot of it is is money. You know, China China buys their resources and th- these countries through their so- sovereign wealths funds, enormous ability to deploy resources, uh, continue uh, to invest in China or invest with China in other parts of the world, and, and not just in resources, but uh, technology. And, and we think about Saudi Arabia and MBS's efforts to uh, expand the economy into new areas, alternative renewable energy and things like that. And China is going to get a lot of those infrastructure contracts. So, uh, yes, your, your point is, is well taken. And, and we see countries that are, are again, they're, with some of those resources are looking for alternatives. And then, of course, the countries that need, they need, need the help, right? So, so for all the talk about debt trap that we hear coming from the United States or, or, or Europe, uh, we still see countries in, in the developing world are still willing to do business uh, on terms uh, offered by China.
0: Okay, where does the G20 fit in? Is that still relevant? President Biden's confirmed he's going to go to the Leaders' Summit in New Delhi uh next month. Maybe there will be a face-to-face meeting with President Xi, we don't know yet, but where, where does the G20 fit into all of this?
1: It's relevant as a talk fest, uh, like a lot of these multilateral meetings have have really turned into, which is why, uh, for a long time, at least, uh, conservatives in the United States, conservative foreign policy uh, observers, uh, have been skeptical of multilateral organizations or multilateral forums. So, I think the G20 will continue to to exist. They'll continue to meet, but uh, it's it's not. A trade uh, uh, agreement um, it's not really a forum where they're going to reach agreement on frankly any significant topic but if you take the view that it's better to be engaged in dialogue than not and that, that's typically a view of in the u.s at least w- w- with the, with the liberal progressive side of the foreign policy uh field so you know someone like president obama loves those meetings uh mm. president Biden, loves those meetings. The people around them, you know, John Kerry, when he was Secretary of State for President Obama, loves these kinds of meetings and he still loves them. He loves going to, you know, wants to go to COP and all these other meetings. Uh, uh, but will it actually accomplish much? I, I think we need to be pessimistic.
0: Well, the, the US also loves meeting with China, doesn't it? Uh, US Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo is the latest official who's going to go and visit uh, Beijing next week. So we've already had visits now by uh, Janet Yellen, by Anthony Blinken. Do, do these visits, are they better ones ways of maybe getting something done getting something concrete done these one on
1: one exchanges well it, it, again it's it's the engagement versus non-engagement and taking a tough line uh it, it, if we look at the role of the secretary of commerce, uh, you know, putting aside the role of, of the previous visitor secretary of state, more political, uh, John Kerry's visit was really limited to environmental issues. Uh, Janet Yellen's looking at you know, debt relief for for developing countries and some other related issues. If, if Raimondo could get some market access for U.S. companies, you know, she turns out to be a great negotiator or China just decides out of goodwill to, And you know, remember in years past when they would have these kinds of meetings, you know, there, there'd always be some give or, or some something from either side. You know, for example, China would announce a procurement of a whole bunch of uh, Boeing aircraft or that they were going to uh, issue licenses for expansion by uh, U.S. financial institutions, you know, a kind of uh, license that had been a slow walk by regulators mm-hmm. for many years So if she could obtain something like that and say, I really got something from China, then I suppose, you know, something good for U.S. business in China. Then I suppose you could say, uh, you know, it it was worth it. And she came out with a victory for U.S. uh, industry. Uh, But it's hard to be optimistic about that, given the overall environment. And you have to say, well, why would China offer anything like that? Why Hmm. would they give her a gift unless they decided it met their strategic interests at this moment in time?
0: And anyway, these things are not actually decided. Are they at the the meeting? They're decided beforehand and then carefully choreographed to be announced at the at the at the meeting so that both sides can show they've done something. But it doesn't look like anything has been agreed in advance for, for this meeting.
1: Yeah, even though the U.S. announced uh, in recent days that some some relief for Chinese companies that were on uh, U.S. blacklists, uh, but whether or not, again, that's going to prompt China to announce something like a major procurement from the United States, uh, again, it's hard to be optimistic. I mean, one of the things she's going to ask about, though, is she's going to ask China to be more transparent
0: um, about the state of its economy. This follows the National Bureau of Statistics abruptly suspending publication of youth unemployment figures. The US National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said earlier this week that these are not, in our view, responsible steps for global confidence, predictability, and the capacity of the rest of the world to make sound economic decisions. It's important for China to maintain a level of transparency in the publication of its data. I'm wondering how far she's going to get uh, with that.
1: Not very far. It doesn't seem to be part of her, her remit. Again, you know, and I think uh, you know, this was kind of the criticism of some of the other uh, visitors, where whether it was Yellen or Blinken, they seemed to be having, you know, they had a portfolio of things they were given to discuss, which wasn't really necessarily within what you think of their lane. And Yellen was talking about broader economic issues beyond what you'd think a, a Treasury Secretary should be talking about. And, and now, Raymondo, again, you should be talking about market access uh access to data is is it's important yeah we i mean especially you know for for you know, your, your your audience i mean we know how important it is to have accurate data before we make investment decisions in china and now it's very difficult to get some of that data but yeah, you know, she just doesn't seem to be the right person to talk about that. And, and Jake Sullivan, my gosh, I mean, for him to talk about that, you know, he sounded like like an economist from the IMF. And, you know, he's just way out of his lane. I mean, China's just going to laugh, you know, hearing that message from him.
0: OK, let me ask you finally about uh, fish. Japan's going to start releasing today more than a million metric tons of treated radioactive water from the wrecked Fukushima nuclear plant into the ocean. It's brought strong condemnation. Um, from China, who's accused it of being irresponsible and using the oceans as its own uh, sewer. And in the meantime, Hong Kong uh, is going to ban uh, Japanese seafood imports from 10 prefectures, and it's going to do te- daily tests on other food from the country starting from today and publish those uh, the results of those daily tests. The Permanent Secretary for Environment and Ecology in Hong Kong, Vivian Lau, couldn't say when the ban would be relaxed. They need to consider data from Japan and Hong Kong to See if it's safe to do so. Why is this turning into a big, um, a big issue? Because at the end of the day, this does meet uh, the requirements of the International Atomic Energy Association, doesn't it?
1: Well, it's it's a little frightening, you know, even if it meets some requirements. Or, or to look at it in a less scientific way, be I mean, frankly, we put so much poison into our body every day. We don't exactly know the the chemicals and understand what what we're eating or or, or drinking. Uh, that's just the reality. Unless we're eating strictly organic, uh, uh, very expensive, uh, highly uh, regulated foods that that earn those kinds of labels. Uh, but uh, it's scary uh, to hear that that uh, there's you know, wastewater or treated water from a, a nuclear accident and, and now we're going to eat seafood that may have been fished out of waters where, where that water w- was put. Uh, it, it's very frightening. And of course, there's a the political element as well, which is uh, uh, Japan is doing this in, in a somewhat unilateral way, even though they've they've given access uh, to international regulators. They've offered Korea regulators to have access to more data and to do site visits. Uh, but there is a political element as well. And then it gets tied into other uh you know, histor- the historical issues between uh, Korea and Japan, even though they've been trying to patch up relations recently, and of course between China and Japan as well, and now Hong Kong will accompany central government policy. Uh, so there, there's a heavy political element, and remember, even though uh, domestically uh, or sorry, internationally or saying foreign relations, uh, Korea's uh, government has been trying to patch up relations, that's not going down well with the public uh, in, in Korea, Uh, So I would expect to see some protests and uh, could affect uh, uh, the the upcoming National Assembly election as well. And then uh, I'd be looking to see whether or not uh, in Hong Kong there's actually some protests outside the Japanese consulate.
0: Okay, Ross, always good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. That's Ross Feingold, who's Business Development Director at SafePro Group over in Taiwan. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewis.moneytalk.substack.com. On tomorrow's program, I'm joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Simon Cavanagh, partner at BDA Partners. With a view from Australia, is Toby Lawson, CEO at Staten Partners. Bye for now. Money Talk.